Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Hey, everyone, my name is Jeremy Waltz, as Topher just said, and I am so incredibly grateful and excited to be here. Uh, and before I actually get too far into introducing myself, I do want to take a quick moment just to say thank you. I am so grateful to have the opportunity to be here and to share with all of you to worship at Area 10. You know, over the, the what, 13 plus years, I think that Area 10 has now been meeting here, I actually have gotten to know a handful of people who call this their church home. And I'll say they are some of the most remarkable, faithful, incredible people I've ever met. So by reputation, I have known this church and this congregation for over a decade. And I'm so incredibly honored and humbled to be here. And in that same vein, I just want to take a moment and invite all of us actually to show our gratitude, our appreciation for for Topher, for Chris Barris, for the entire leadership team here. Because I think we can all admit past few years have been a little crazy, right? Like the world has been hard always, but at least I feel like the past few years have been like particularly difficult. It has just seemed like week after week, month after month, year after year, like things just seem to be surmounting more and more on the difficulty scale. And I am incredibly grateful for churches like Area 10, for leaders like Chris, for leadership teams like this church has to model servant leadership. And for everything that you all have done as a congregation for this city, for this church, but most importantly for the kingdom of God. And so if we could, can we just take a moment and with a round of applause or however you want to do it, but can we just say thank you to Chris, to Tover, for everybody else who's a leader here. Like I said, I, I, am, I am honored, I'm humbled, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, like I was saying a little bit earlier, my name is Jeremy Waltz, and I, I currently serve as the director of discipleship and small groups at a local nonprofit called Needles Eye Ministries. And if you have heard of us, that's awesome. If you haven't heard of us, that's okay. I want to give you a really quick context as to kind of what we do, right? So we've been around for about 46 years. Kind of this man, this myth, this legend named Buddy Childress planted this, uh, or I guess founded this organization about 46 years ago, and he's been doing really faithful work ever since. But Ultimately, the way that I would describe it this morning is Needles Eye exists to evangelize and disciple the marketplace. Now, what I mean by that is we know that there are a lot of people who are going to work Monday through Friday or whatever schedule they happen to have, and they would never go to church, right? They would never actually darken the doors of walking into any church building anywhere in the city. And so what we try to do is provide places, experiences that not only help them become better at their jobs to develop their skill sets, but hopefully along the way, they actually get to learn a little bit something about Jesus Christ in the process. Part of that is not only hosting events that will allow them to hear how to become better at their jobs and a little bit of Jesus, but we also disciple their coworkers, right? Christians who are already in the marketplace in such a way that they would actually embody their faith. Right? This is more than water cooler evangelism. This would actually be allowing the truths of the gospel to change the way that you interact with your coworkers, your clients, your stakeholders. It would change the way you engage in business decisions or the ethics that you live out when you're at work. So perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm here this morning to talk to you about your work, and maybe more importantly or more specifically, what God intends for you through your work, right? I want to start by talking to you briefly about what work is not, right? Some kind of misconceptions many of us have, and then transition us to talking about what work is, 
right? What your work is as intended by God. So we're going to get started in just a second, but if you don't mind, I would love a chance just to pray one more time, and then we'll jump all the way in. Father God, thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to be here. Thank you for all of the incredible people who have made this even possible, from the setup team who came in early this morning to the leadership team who trusted some stranger to come in here and hold a microphone. And most importantly, Father, I thank you for every person who's in here now sitting in these seats or watching online. Father, that you would allow this to be a time when we are all keenly aware of your presence, both surrounding us but also within us. That we would be aware of what you are doing, what you are teaching us, how you are forming us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, every single day. Father, let us take that into our personal lives, our professional lives. Let us take that into the way that we treat our spouses, our children, our friends, whoever you happen to bring into our path this day and forever onward. Father, we give you praise. We are so grateful to you. In your name, amen. So as I was preparing for this, I started to think back to my very first job ever. Okay, when I say that, I grew up and I, you know, of course, babysat and I mowed lawns. But my first job when I had to, like, give money to the IRS, right? Like, my first big boy job. So my first big boy job came when I was in high school. I was a strapping 17-year-old who served in the coveted position of local ice cream barista at the Coldstone Creamery down the street. Anybody here ever been to a Coldstone Creamery? Right? It's not as good as gelati. I worked there, I can say that. Gelati wins hands down. So I worked at a Cold Stone for just under a year in what was obviously one of the most sought after positions. The competition was intense. While I was there, any of you who've been to a Cold Stone, you know that we're famous for more than just our ice cream, right? We also happen to be famous for our jingles. When you went to a Cold Stone, did you ever tip? For a second, I was like, you are all terrible people. So some of you tipped, and you, you know, unfortunately, from first-hand experience, what happens. The moment a tip goes into the tip jar at the end of that counter, the entire staff, whoever you are, whatever you do, you could be cleaning the bathroom. It didn't matter. You had to stop what you were doing and sing a song for everybody in the store, right? And not just any song. These were songs that we as a team collectively would actually have brainstorming sessions. We would come together and maybe it was a really popular song on the radio. Maybe it was a kid's lullaby, something everybody would know. We would rewrite the lyrics to be singing glorious accolades, the confectionery delights of Cold Stone ice cream. And let me tell you that when you are a 17-year-old boy and your biggest concern in life is getting a date to the prom, there are a few things more horrifically terrifying and embarrassing than locking eyes with the girl you're getting ready to ask to the prom and seeing her break into hysterical laughter because you're stuck singing this, right? You can probably see the words. Sing along with me. Sprinkle, sprinkle, candy bar. This is what our mixins are. Add a little brownie too. We'll make ice cream just for you. Sprinkle, sprinkle, candy bar. Put a dollar in our jar. Thank you. I had to channel my inner Britney Spears because I'm wearing the microphone. This was horrifying, right? And by the way, I completely blame Coldstone for the fact I had to go stag to my senior prom. There's no getting a yes out of somebody after they watch you do this. It was absolutely terrifying. And because this was my first ever job, it really sort of set the tone for me. Like, it defined for me what work was. And as a 17-year-old who felt like all of my dating prospects were destroyed by my employment, I came to the conclusion that work was nothing more than a form of ongoing torture. Absolute punishment. That's all that it was. It's something we do because we have to in order to survive. It's a necessary evil. You do it because how else are you going to pay the bills or put gas in the tank or put groceries in the fridge? Right? Work is a form of punishment. End of story. 
And I'm going to take a wild guess here and say, I'm not the only person who's ever felt this way. In fact, show of hands, although realistically I'm blind up here so I can barely tell, but show of hands if you've ever felt like your, your job was something you just had to do. It was just something that you were forced to do to get one paycheck to the next, on and on and on, ad nauseum for the rest of your lives, right? I know we feel this way. In fact, ironically, part of the reason we feel this way is because we come to this conclusion from reading Scripture. There's actually this moment that comes in Genesis chapter 3. It, it comes right after Adam and Eve sort of ruined the human experience for the rest of us by taking a bite of that Granny Smith apple. And this is what it says in Genesis 3. God looks at Adam and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow will you eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and for dust you are, to dust you shall return. Right, that's pretty doom and gloom. When you read that, I, I don't know about you, but for me, every time I read this, I can't help but come to the conclusion that God is incredibly angry, right? It, it sounds like what he's saying is that essentially because of your disobedience, right, because you couldn't follow one simple rule, work, labor, and toil will be your punishment for the rest of your life. You'll work hard, and you will sweat, and you will bleed, and you will struggle simply to survive, and I know that for many of us, this is exactly how it feels when we go to work. It's laborious, it's toilsome, it's tedious, it's something we do as we struggle to get from one paycheck to the next, but what other choice do we have? But here's the kind of amazing thing. Work actually is not a consequence of the fall. Work is not something that we do simply because Adam and Eve couldn't keep their grubby little hands to themselves. Work is not now, nor was it ever intended to be a form of punishment at all. As a matter of fact, when you really get down and look into it, you realize that work was always meant to be a part of God's design for humanity. Well before Genesis, or well before the fall in Genesis chapter 2, this is what we read, okay? And this comes at a moment where God has created the heavens and the earth, and he has populated the world with the animals of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And then he does his most crowning achievement. He creates humanity. He takes a step back, and he says, and it was very good. And then in Genesis 2, verse 15, this is what we read. So then the Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is an incredible moment. God has himself worked and labored and created. He has built this beautiful earth upon which we currently inhabit, upon which we currently dwell. And then he takes a step back and he entrusts the care, the cultivation, the stewardship of this beautiful world to you and me. He takes this, this step back and he hands off the authority and the control and dominion of this world to us. And in this moment, what we see is that pre-fall, right, pre-fall when the Garden of Eden was still quite literally heaven on earth, pre-fall when, when humanity and God peacefully coexisted together in paradise, work was somehow still a part of the equation, even in paradise. Even before the fall, work is a part of the human experience. 
I heard it put this way by a man named Hugh Welchel. He was at the time the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And sort of uh, thinking about the pre-fall existence of humanity, he had this to say. He said, paradise was never a vacation. It was a vocation. His point being, of course, that even in heaven, past as well as future, even in heaven, we will still have a job to do. Even in heaven, somehow, God will still gift us with the ability to contribute, to produce, to create. And this leaves us with the simple conclusion that, that work, quite frankly, work is just not a punishment for wrongdoing. It's not something we do because we broke one rule long ago. It is actually our God-given opportunity currently as well as in the future to make this world a little bit more like the paradise he initially created it to be. In a really silly little way, I remember one day when I was a 17-year-old singing Ice Cream Barista, and we locked our doors at 9 p.m., okay? That's when we closed down. It's called Cold Stone, by the way, because there is quite literally a cold stone upon which we would throw the ice cream and do the mixins and everything. And it's kind of like when you have an ice storm and you have to take an ice scraper to the windshield of your car. We had to do that at the end of every single shift. We would turn off like the freezing device on the cold stone and start to scrape this thing and get it ready for the next day's business. It took like an hour just for that, not to mention the floors and the tables and the chairs and the bathrooms and everything else. So at 9 p.m., I lock the door and I go back and we start this lengthy process. And a few minutes later, we hear this kind of weak little knock on the front door. And I turn, and what do I see but this poor, bedraggled, exhausted-looking man who had a caravan of what had to be at least a dozen 10-year-old boys standing right behind him. And come to find out, it's this man's son's birthday. And he promised all of them ice cream as a part of the celebration. He just didn't think about it in time. In that moment, I'm 17 years old, all my coworkers were all essentially high schoolers. None of us have any real decision-making power. We're not managers. We have no power or control. But in that moment, we looked at the door, we saw this man, we saw these little kids, and we realized in that moment, it was in our power to inject just a little bit of joy into this boy's birthday. So we willingly opened the door, we cheerfully ushered them in, we turned everything back on, and we started to serve them ice cream, and we had to stay extra late, and I'm sure we cost the company extra dollars, but in that moment, all of us felt so much pride in the fact that we were given the ability through our job, through our serving of ice cream, to cr produce, create, and share just a little bit of joy in a broken and weary world. Even in the simplest ways, we can come to find out that work is not punishment for wrongdoing. Rather, it is a God-given opportunity to create, to produce, and to help make this world just a little bit more like the paradise it was supposed to be. And this actually does lead me into the next thing that our work is not. Work is not the way by which we define or prove our self-worth. Work is not how we prove ourselves to be of value in this world. When I introduced myself to you all this morning, I didn't say I am the director of discipleship in small groups. Rather, I came up here and I said I currently serve in the role of director of discipleship in small groups. And I know that's really small. That's semantics. It's technicalities. I know that I'm not usually that way. But I do say that on purpose because my job is not my identity. My role and responsibilities, that's not where my value or my worth come from. My work does not assign to me the value of my life. And I actually share that because that is kind of a recent revelation for me. I struggled with this for a long time. 
Before I went to work with Needle's Eye Ministries, I actually served as a pastor in a local church for over 10 years. And there are a number of reasons why I decided to leave that job, but one of them was because I realized I was losing my ability to discern where my work ended and where I began. Essentially, what I had allowed myself to do was to allow my identity to become so enmeshed in my job that I based my value, my worth as a human being on the successes or failures of my ministry. I'll tell you, that's a really exhausting place to be. Every day you walk in and it really just depends on what happens. You have a really great day and you go home and you think, man, I'm I'm doing so much good. I'm contributing. I'm worth something. This is awesome. But the very next day you can have a downfall. Something happened and you walk away and you go, man, what am I doing here? I'm just wasting time. I'm wasting space. I'm wasting resources. It's exhausting. And truth be told, it is shockingly common, not just for pastors. It's shockingly common across professionals in every industry or in any role. We measure our worth often by our work. We often measure our value by our ability to produce. It's just this thing that we as humans, we tend to fall into this idea that in order to be worth more, I have to do more. In order to have more value, I have to produce or contribute or constantly just be making more that is of value to other people. And when we find ourselves trapped in this mental process, everything else sort of seems to fall into second place. Our health begins to suffer because we don't give ourselves the rest that even God recognizes we need in order to thrive. Our families fade into the background because in order to provide for them, we spend less and less time with them. Our social lives become non-existent because any time not spent being productive is time that feels like it was wasted. So going to see a movie or grabbing a drink with a friend might be really great and all, but imagine how much I could have done if I'd gone to the office instead. And then ultimately and inevitably... The day comes when we begin to sacrifice our faith on the altar of work as worth. Tim Keller is a pastor of a church in New York called Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and he wrote a book entitled Every Good Endeavor. It was his version of kind of tackling the faith and work subject. In his book, he said this, work is not all there is to life. You will not have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. If you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, as it was in my case, you create an idol that rivals God. Work was never meant to be the barometer by which we measure our, our value or our worth as human beings. It was never meant to be the origin or the source of our identity. See, in the beginning, when God first saw fit to create humanity, in the beginning, when he first chose to breathe the breath of life into the lungs of humanity, he created us in his own image. Genesis 1, a verse I'm sure you've heard plenty of times, says, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Such a simple verse with such profound implications. See, our worth, our value as human beings, it does not come from what we do. It is not found in our titles. It is not found in our responsibilities, which means it does not increase with our successes, nor does it diminish with our failures. 
our value, our worth, our very identity as human beings is found in the mere fact that we were created in the image of Almighty God, and there is absolutely nothing you can do, nothing you can accomplish, nothing you can achieve that will ever change what you are already worth. There's no business you can start. There's no deal you can broker. There's no promotion you can get that will ever increase what you are already worth. And in much the same way, there's no job you can be fired from. There's no business that can furlough you. There's no employment status that can ever decrease what you are already worth. I know I've spent a lot of time already talking to you about what work is not. Work is not a form of punishment. Work is not the means by which we discover or prove our own self-worth. So if work is not those things, then what is it? What is work? You know, I've been a Christian virtually my entire life. I was raised in a Christian home. I accepted Christ at a fairly early age. I did youth group all throughout high school. I did campus ministry in college. Upon graduating college, I went to seminary, and I worked as a pastor. Now I work at a Christian nonprofit. I tell you that because I need you to understand, my entire life has been lived in the context of Christianity. And it didn't matter where I was geographically, whether Harrisonburg at JMU, Go Dukes, or anywhere else. It didn't matter where I was. At all times, I was convinced, I was constantly almost kind of subversively taught this idea that the only work that really matters to God is the work of ministry. I was raised on stories of these really successful businessmen or these really powerful businesswomen who eventually felt the call to go into ministry, so they left their secular careers, they left their luxurious, luxurious positions in order to pursue going into the ministry as a pastor or as a missionary, only then to find true value, significance, and purpose to their lives. I heard countless of these stories growing up. These people, these men and these women of faith, they became my heroes. And I'm guessing many of you have heard many of those same stories. And truth be told, those stories are partly why I went into ministry in the first place. Because I always wanted my work to matter. I always wanted my work to mean something. But can I let you in on a little secret I've learned after 10 plus years of professional ministry? What I've learned is that there is not a single verse in the entirety of the Bible that suggests God cares more for the work of the pastor or the minister than he does for the work of the accountant or the retail worker. God does not care more for my work today as a minister or as a director in a Christian nonprofit than he did for my work as a singing ice cream barista. He was as much at work through me when I was serving ice cream as he is when I'm serving communion. And the same is true for each and every one of you. In fact, what you do learn as you make your way through Scripture is this idea that there are multiple places, multiple places that suggest all work done for the glory of God is work that matters to God. All work done for the glory of God is work well done. And as we transition to our last period of time together, I want to walk you through just one, just one of these places in Scripture it's Exodus chapter 31, and this actually comes at a moment in the history of Israel when Moses, and if you don't know a whole bunch about the history, I'll, I'll give you kind of the highlights. Moses is kind of this, this professional pastor, right? He is the spiritual authority over the entire nation. He is the pastor of the people. And there's this moment where God gives Moses a command. He says, I need you to build for me a dwelling place on earth, a place where I, God, can actually come down from heaven and dwell among my people. Here's the problem. 
Moses and all of his spiritual authority and all of his spiritual expertise is completely ill-equipped. He's incapable. He cannot do the one thing God is commanding him to do. So what happens next? Exodus 31 picks up. So then the Lord God said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut, cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, the son of Ahisamech, the tribe of Dan, to help him. I have also given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. At a moment in time where the spiritual authority, where the professional ministers are incapable of doing the very thing God is commanding them to do, God chooses Bezalel to be his master craftsman and his project manager. God appoints Oholiab to be his executive assistant to make sure there are enough workers and enough supplies to get the job done on time and on budget. And he gives ability to the workers so they might accomplish the task that God has set before them. You can already see that there are some pretty amazing implications to this idea. But what I find even more remarkable is the language God uses when he places this call in each of these workers' lives. He says, I've chosen, I've appointed, I've given ability. This is the exact same language you find elsewhere in Scripture when God calls, appoints, and equips the prophets, the apostles, the preachers, and the teachers to the work of ministry. And what we learn is that in the same way that God may call one of us into the pastorate, he may call another us into construction. In the same way that God may call one of us onto the mission field, he might call another of us into banking or into finance. In the same way that God may call many of us to go into ministry, he may just as well call many of us to go into creative arts or education, the service industry, to be entrepreneurs, to be investors. In the same way that God calls some into the ministry, he places just as significant and just as real of a call on the lives of others to go into the marketplace, to go into professional, secular work, and to take his spirit with them. Your work, whatever it may be, your work is a sacred calling. Your work, whatever it may be, your work is a divine appointment, one for which God has uniquely gifted you with the skills, the interest, and the aptitude to do. And so by faithfully executing your role, be it as a financial advisor or a graphic designer, as a stay-at-home parent, as a preschool teacher, an entrepreneur, anything else, by faithfully executing your role, you are just as faithfully serving God and your call as is the pastor, minister, or Bible teacher. Just as faithfully doing your job as is Topher or Chris Barris week after week when they stand on the stage. I hope that can actually be really, really comforting to a lot of people today. Because I know for a lot of us, especially with the pandemic, with the way that businesses have had to completely reinvent themselves, there were furloughs and there were layoffs and there were businesses that were just starting that couldn't survive. There were so many things that got in the way 
If you look back at Genesis, it's this idea of there will be thorns and thistles. There will be things that crop up that God did not intend initially, but the brokenness isn't work. The brokenness is the struggles, the thorn, the thistle, the things that pop up. I know for many of us, the past few years have been full of thorns and thistles, but I hope you know that just by doing what God put on your life, by leaning into the job that God has equipped you to do, you are faithfully answering the call. And going to bed one night gainfully employed and waking up the next night with financial instability and insecurity in no way, shape, or form has any power to diminish what you are already worth as an image bearer of God. Work is not a form of punishment. It's not the means by which we discover or prove our self-worth even to ourselves. It is an opportunity for each one of us to fulfill the sacred calling that God has placed on each one of our lives. There's this one passage I want to go into, and then I promise we'll be closing out here in a minute. It's a passage I wasn't initially going to use, but for like two weeks, God has just been thrusting this to the forefront of my mind, and so I, I just essentially lost the ability to resist. So I want to read to you very briefly from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this actually comes at a time when Paul, who's sort of like, you know, the hero of all New Testament writers, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth because he's found them arguing over which pastor does the best work, right? I belong to Paul. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Apollos. And so Paul writes this letter, and he basically says, what is Paul? What's Apollos? What's Cephas? Are we not all just co-workers working for the same God, doing the same work? Besides, no one of us can actually make the work worthwhile. It's God who brings forth the productivity. At this moment in time, Paul continues to pen in his letter these words. He says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one, escaping through the flame. I know that's actually a very complicated text. I really wish I could spend more time diving deep into it with you all. But if there's one thing I think we really need to pay attention to, it's what it says in verse 13 and 14. Your work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, if what has been built survives, here as well as elsewhere in Scripture, there's this idea presented that the things we do here and now on earth might actually have the potential to carry over into eternity. This idea that, that what we do here now, day to day, has the potential to survive the transition between this life into the next. And honestly, that one simple fact by itself, that ought to be enough to infuse us with this core holy conviction that our work is capable of accomplishing far more than anyone of us might have initially dreamed or imagined. Our work, what we do day in and day out, it is an opportunity to do now something that will last into eternity. Tom Nelson He's a man who founded a ministry called Made to Flourish. It's another faith and work ministry. 
He wrote a book entitled Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Faith to Monday Work. And he says it this way. If our daily work, done for the glory of God and for the common good of others, in some way carries over into the new heaven and the new earth, then our present work itself is overflowing with immeasurable value and eternal significance. Immeasurable value and eternal significance. I know for many of us, it may be really hard to think about our jobs and say, yeah, there's a lot of internal significance here. Really, really important work I do, whatever it may be. I mean, trust me, when I was a 17-year-old ice cream scooper, I didn't think there was anything significant or eternal about the work I was doing. But I've come to learn over the years that I can serve God just as faithfully with an ice cream scoop in my hand as I can with a Bible. In fact, just over the past few years, Really, over the past year in this job at Needle's Eye, I've gotten to know a financial planner who's faithfully serving God by helping people to achieve financial independence and stability. He literally describes his job as bringing order to the chaos of people's finances. I've met a retail worker lifelong. Her entire career has been spent in a retail store, and she faithfully serves God by treating every single person and helping every single person who walks into her store see themselves as God does, confident, self-assured, and beautiful. I know a school bus driver who faithfully serves God by transporting the single most precious piece of cargo any person can have to and from their homes as they get a quality education. I know a grocery store worker who sees it as his call to faithfully serve God and his community by making sure fresh food is accessible and well cared for. I've met a CEO who makes it her point, her entire purpose, to make sure every single one of her employees is fairly compensated and treated with the dignity and respect they deserve from the top floor to the bottom. No one person is of greater or lesser value than another. I've met a thousand other people in a thousand other jobs, each one of them who faithfully serves God because they recognize that what they do and how they do it just might follow them into eternity. By viewing their work this way, they make certain they do good work. And my hope for us this morning is that each one of us can say the exact same thing. We can look at what we do, we can look at how we do it, and we can say, what I do is so good, I would do it in paradise. That we can look at our work and how we do it, and we can say, what I do is so good, I do it for the glory of God. That we can look at what we do and say, what I do is of such immeasurable value, of such eternal significance, that I would be proud to carry it with me into eternity. Needle's Eye Ministry exists to evangelize and disciple the marketplace. That means that we come alongside tons and tons of people and we just support them as they go on this journey of discerning the immeasurable value and the internal significance of what they do. And if that describes you, if you find yourself sitting here going, maybe my work is worth more than I realized. Maybe the calling God has placed on my life can accomplish more. It can carry over into eternity. I want to know how to do that, how to engage in my work in that way. If that's you, we would love, love to come alongside you and support you on that journey. But even if you don't, here's my greatest hope. That every one of us no longer looks at us and thinks, man, if I want to do real work that truly matters, i got to become a pastor or a missionary or a Bible study teacher. I hope you can look at what you do and you can say, God is here. And I'm faithfully serving God. God has equipped me and he has called me and he has put me in this position on purpose. 
So what can I do to make this work good? What can I do to make my work carry over into eternity by helping make this earth a little more like the paradise it was initially created to be? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning, for the time you've given us to be here. My prayer, Father, truly is that every single one of us now would begin to look for you and the day-to-day jobs that we have and what you have called us to and, and the way that you have placed yourself in the midst of our workplaces, enabled us to become the transforming presence in order to bring your spirit to everywhere that we go. Help us to redeem, Father, every aspect of what you've brought into our control or into our spheres of influence and make sure that it's not just what we do at home, it's not just what we do on the weekends or how we serve at church that matters, Father, but every single moment of our lives. The way that we treat our coworkers, the way that we handle our finances, the way that we make our decisions, Father, all of it we surrender to you. Every last bit. Father, we we surrender it to you as you make us more and more the reflection of your son and your glory in this world. Father, we give you praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.